Speaking of global news, uh, you heard on the Mike Smith show, um, President Joe Biden uh, has been addressing the media. And it's not been since 1945 that the world has even seen a military move the magnitude about uh, the the size of what Russia has brought to the border of Ukraine. Troops have been building at that border for weeks and weeks, doing drills, keeping the West on high alert. Certainly it has been a, uh, a hot topic, been debated. What will happen? When will it happen? Well, Russian President Vladimir Putin has given the order to enter Ukraine's regions that he has deemed independent. Uh, That's something to unpack all into itself. Uh, Today, as I mentioned, U.S. President Joe Biden addressing the power play, giving some insights as to what happens next. Have a listen. Over the last few months, we've coordinated closely with our NATO allies and partners in Europe and around the world to prepare that response. We've said all along, and I've told Putin to his face some month, a month, more than a month ago, that we would act together. And the moment Russia moved against Ukraine, Russia has now undeniably moved against Ukraine by declaring these independent states. So today, I'm announcing the first tranche of sanctions to impose costs on Russia in response to their actions yesterday. These have been closely coordinated with our allies and partners, and will continue to escalate sanctions if Russia escalates. We're implementing full blocking sanctions on two large Russian financial institutions, VEB and their military bank. We're implementing comprehensive sanctions on Russian sovereign debt. That means we've cut off Russia's government from Western financing. It can no longer raise money from the West and cannot trade in its new debt on our markets or European markets either. Starting tomorrow and continuing in the days ahead, we'll also impose sanctions on Russia's elites and their family members. They share in the corrupt gains of the Kremlin policies and should share in the pain as well. And because of Russia's actions, we've worked with Germany to ensure Nord Stream 2 will not, as I promised, will not move forward. All right. To drill down on this, we welcome good friend of the program, Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini to the program. Hi, Reggie. Good afternoon. I want to unpack this with you. There's so much that I think I have grasped, but I want your expertise on what we heard President Joe Biden saying right there. Up until this point, many pundits have been saying that Biden's sanctions that he has been putting on the table to slow the roll of the Russians into Ukraine uh, have been somewhat toothless. Are we hearing that there's more to it now in what Biden has been saying today? Well, look, this kind of goes along with what the rest of the world was doing when it comes to the United Nation, uh, when it comes to the European Union and the United Kingdom. Nobody was willing to take a proactive measure when it came to putting sanctions on the table in the United States. Uh, the president was running into a, a situation where he was losing domestic support. He was not able to get a bipartisan support for a big sanctions package, which is why he went the way of an executive order yesterday uh, to stop the financial dealings with people inside those breakaway regions within eastern Ukraine. But the announcement of today's sanctions are significant, uh, number one, because it follows along with the UK and EU in targeting uh, significant Russian banks uh, and Russian oligarchs and those within Vladimir Putin's circle. But the secondary uh, announcement that he made where he's cutting off Russia from the Western financial market, that is a big move. That is ultimately going to have an impact uh, on Russia's ability to deal with its debt and trade within Western markets. That potentially uh, could be something Vladimir Putin didn't expect that the West had 
had in it in order to levy that. We'll see if there is a response from it. But nonetheless, uh, this is, as we heard, just the first step in what is going to be this kind of final diplomatic approach to try and walk Russia back. So, Reggie, pardon my novice here, but can you explain sovereign debt and when there is a discussion that uh, Russians will no longer be able to raise money in the West and no access to trading? Does that mean, you know, if you live in Russia and you're a big bank in Russia, you can't uh, go to the New York Stock Exchange and, and make moves? Yeah, basically, that's what they're going to be doing with those banks. Now, it's important to know that while Russia is being cut off from the Western market, these sanctions that the president put in place when it comes to the banks did not touch some of the biggest banks within Russia, because that ultimately would have had a ripple effect on uh, the average Russian population. Uh, and this is potentially kind of an off ramp that's being offered to Putin by saying, look, we're going to go after some of your big banks. We're going to make it impossible for you to fund your military. We're going to make it impossible for you to try and wheel and deal your debts in order to to make your obligations uh, when it comes to your kind of financial issues. Uh, but to not go after the Russian people signals that, look, we are still willing to work with you, even though what you're doing is causing concern not only in Ukraine, but also in NATO's eastern flank and across the world right now. Uh, again, this is going to be a situation where one needs to watch to see whether or not Vladimir Putin is going to respond or accept what was just handed to him. Right. Can you explain to me as well, uh, elites and oligarchs, who are we talking about when those terms are used? Look, these are the billionaires uh, that live uh, in Russia that are very high, uh, high rolling players when it comes to Russian politics, when it comes to the Russian economy. Many of them uh, have uh, significant influence, not only uh, towards uh, Vladimir Putin, but towards the lower house and towards the Kremlin in general. Uh, these are people who ultimately can make or break uh, the way that Russia moves forward, the way that Moscow implements its policy uh, and to make it impossible for them to be able to access their money, to make it impossible for them to be able to put money somewhere else else that they may be able to access at a different time makes it more difficult for these people to con- uh, to maintain the control that they have. What we didn't hear was any kind of travel restrictions on people coming in and out uh, of Russia, which we've seen sanctions take in the past. But that could be part of that second or third wave that comes not only from the U.S., uh, but from Western leaders as a whole. Right. So should there be a movement of troops into Ukraine, as has been the threat This is just the beginning of the reaction from the United States. Talk to me about Nord Stream and Nord Stream 2. This is a big deal uh, that, again, another moment that was, you know, we're not sure if Vladimir Putin was anticipating that this would take place because the Germans had been hesitant to do this. Nord Stream 2 is an incredibly important uh, route for oil to get out of Russia, bypassing Ukraine, potentially costing Ukraine billions of dollars here in transit fees, uh, and then also uh, providing that oil in towards Europe. Having Russia withhold certification of this now makes it... uh, at the moment, impossible to get Russian oil out through this pipeline into Germany. Does that have ripple effects into the German economy, into the German people? Yes. Does it mean that there's potentially going to be an increase in energy prices across Europe? Yes. But experts say they are willing to kind of eat that price uh, for uh, to, to try and get um, a peaceful solution here. But what it does is ultimately take billions of dollars out of the pockets of the Russian government, of the Russian economy. And this is also going to have now a trickle-down effect, not only through the Kremlin, through the government, but through Russia. Uh, uh, people as well uh, who would have been possibly dependent on these jobs. Cutting this out of the market, cutting this out, uh, weaponizes it in the eyes of the Russians, but uses it as a political tool now for the West. We still believe that Russia is poised to go much further in launching a massive military attack against Ukraine. 
Hope I'm wrong about that. Hope we're wrong about that. But Russia has only escalated its threat against the rest of Ukrainian territory, including major cities and including the capital city of Kyiv. There are, there are still well over 150,000 Russian troops surrounding Ukraine. And as I said, Russian forces remain positioned in Belarus to attack Ukraine from the north, including warplanes and offensive missile systems. Russia has moved troops closer to Ukraine's border with Russia. Russia's naval vessels are maneuvering in the Black Sea to Ukraine's south, including amphibious assault ships, missile cruisers, and submarines. Russia's moved supplies of blood and medical equipment into position on their border. You don't need blood unless you plan on starting a war. That is U.S. President Joe Biden speaking just minutes ago, addressing what is an escalating tension on the border of Ukraine. And Vladimir Putin certainly being coy about uh, whether or not the plan is to stage an all-out invasion, certainly giving troops the go-ahead to what Putin identifies as independent states. Uh, Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, is with us to try and help us understand what is actually taking place at that border. And Reggie, what is actually happening in the U.S. Capitol with regard to the the constant fluid situation uh, with Russia and Ukraine? What are you hearing uh, next steps are likely here? Well, look, uh, next steps are going to pay attention to whatever Vladimir Putin does. We heard from NATO today that Russia is moving from covert to overt with this uh, with this kind of thrust of military force into the eastern regions that they've declared independent, but also now fearful that this could extend in towards the oblasts or the provinces or the regions that are still under Ukrainian government uh, control, uh, and whether or not that is going to lead to a potential all-out assault or at least a fragmented piece-by-piece assault uh, across, uh, across Ukraine. Uh, from Russia. There is uh, fear in the United States that this is going to potentially uh, take, um, uh, you know, the attention away from domestic issues. Uh, but there is still a bipartisan push in the United States to get uh, some kind of resolution uh, that ultimately doesn't draw uh, U.S. troops further in. Now, that being said, the president has announced that there's also going to be a push and a surge of U.S. troops into NATO's eastern flanks uh, through the Baltic states here. Again, p- kind of coming back to that wide, bizarre speech that was given by Vladimir Putin yesterday talking about uh, the madness of independent states that came after the fall of the USSR. So there is uh, kind of a growing concern in the U.S. that they still don't really understand what's going on. Polling shows that the average American, or at least a growing number of Americans, don't want to see any kind of involvement. That's likely not going to happen. The president has said there will be no American troops on the ground in Ukraine no matter what. And with the undertone of this being all about how Vladimir Putin wants uh, NATO to promise to never try and bring Ukraine into their group, uh, it feels, and I'm certainly no political expert, but watching that, that feels like an excuse at a time where the Russian president is looking to simply continue his ultimate mission, which is to fracture the West. Yeah, look, there is a push here to try and get NATO to uh, stop its expansion. He sees this as a security threat to the Russian border. Uh, we heard yesterday uh, kind of pushing back on Ukrainian sovereignty as it is, saying that Ukraine was created by Russia and therefore, uh, you know, belongs to Russia, has a puppet regime in place, calling it a United States uh, colony, really trying to say that Ukraine uh, is just under the influence of Westerns, uh, uh, Western leaders uh, and needs to come back into Russia. 
Russia. This is obviously uh, problematic. Uh, you know, he was kind of nostalgic for the old USSR, for the Russian Empire. Uh, and, and there are concerns here that this is really going to uh, continue to escalate as we see these military movements go further. It's unclear. Is he looking to take Ukraine as a whole? Is he trying to create some kind of land bridge to get down to the annexed Crimean Peninsula, uh, you know, which he is now trying to say, look, uh, we can de-escalate all of this if you simply just call Crimea a part of Russian territory. He, he's he's doing what he can to destabilize the West, to destabilize Ukraine. He's just meeting heavy resistance in doing that. Is there a piece of this puzzle that China is involved with from an intelligence perspective? From an intelligence perspective, possibly. From an uh, from an economic perspective, absolutely. Now that we've seen Nord Stream 2 uh, put on the shelf, uh, at least temporarily or for now, uh, we know that Russia has signed massive multi-billion dollar deals uh, with Beijing in order to start shipping oil towards that country. It's the third largest uh, 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 customer for Russian energy, so they're going to start putting oil through a pipeline that runs through Siberia. Uh, this is potentially going to offset some of the losses that would have come from Nord Stream 2. It pumps a lot more money back into the Russian economy. It strengthens the ties between Moscow uh, and Beijing. Uh, so this is something that the world is going to be watching. There are already concerns here that the way that Vladimir Putin is acting towards Ukraine, does this mean that, you know, it provides a potential avenue for uh, Xi Jinping to start acting this way towards Taiwan? There's there's mm. global ramifications to what's happening in Moscow right now. Uh, and that is where a lot of the concern is focused, uh, not just with the United States and with Taiwan, but with all leaders in the vicinity of the Ukraine-Russia border. Certainly something we need to remain informed upon. We thank you for uh, giving us the debrief that, that sort of puts everything in context for us. And I'm sure we'll have you on speed dial as always, Reggie. Thank you. Thank you. Jody Vance in for Jill this week. And if you're the grocery shopper in your household, you already know that food prices are spiking as our economy suffers at inflation rates not seen in decades. Sticker shock at the checkout. Have you had it? Yeah. It's ever more a reality, the, the gulp moment that you have when that final total is announced at the grocery store. It is impacting how Canadians shop. It really, really is. And that, you know, is one of the questions that has been put to Canadians by our next guest, who is bringing the answers. The president of Angus Reid Institute, Chachi Curl, is on the line. And Chachi, thank you for doing this. Let's talk through what Canadians are telling you when it comes to how food buying habits are changing with inflation. Well, we've known for some time, Jody, that, that this has been a cost pressure and a source of stress for families, especially those with um, younger kids at home. And, you know, at a time when uh, more than 40% of Canadians are saying, feeding my family, feeding my household is very difficult. And when you look at that, by the way, uh, by income, and you know that lowest income households are the ones struggling the most. And yes, that's kind of obvious, but also it really just brings home how much more difficult it is. If you are lower income, this is the stuff that's keeping you up at night and you're having to make so many changes. And the changes really cut through a swath of behaviors. The, the, first, uh, the first thing that's going for more than, than half of, of people, for the majority, is that they're eating out less. So uh, skip the dishes, Uber Eats, restaurant meals, uh, ordering in, all of that, a lot of that is, is going by the wayside uh, for 62% of, of the people that we surveyed coast to coast. Um, 
switching to to cheaper, lower quality brands, shopping around, I admit that that that's something I do now. I will say, eh, I don't want to pay that much for a brick of cheese. Maybe I'll pay that much for a brick of cheese, even even if it's it's not my usual brand. Uh, families that eat meat are cutting back on meat. Uh, households that that consume alcohol are cutting back on alcohol. And here's the really scary one. Um, the number of, of people and households that are cutting back on fresh fruit and vegetables because we talk about, you know, the importance of eating healthy. One in five families say that they are cutting back on fresh fruit and veg. Four uh, percent, which still represents, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in this country also say that they've gone to a food bank for groceries. So, you know, when you talk about the, the ways that people just sort of flip under that poverty line and flip into places that are not so good. Um, This is how it starts. You know, and like you, the cutting back on fruits and vegetables is one that really hits me in my heart. It's always been extra expensive to eat healthy for whatever reason. It's kind of like our broken system where you can get a bunch of junk food for next to nothing. But boy, oh boy, that thing of blueberries off season can be uh, cost prohibitive to say the least or the $5 cucumber, you know, and and it shifts to like, okay, what can I get to feed to fill a belly as opposed to something that I can get that is my highest opportunity for nutrients for my kids in a household where you're making ends meet. And and as you said, you know, changing your brands and and what have you. I grew up in a household where it was a threadbare in the uh, late 70s, early 80s in a single parent environment. I remember mom stretching what we could to make ends meet. And I feel like we're back there again for so many families in Canada right now, as the earnings aren't matching up with the affordability of the cities we live in added on with the inflation and now the rising cost of food. I mean, it used to be such a luxury to be able to go into a grocery store and buy what's on your list as opposed to looking at your list and saying, okay, what can I manage to get into this paper bag at the end of the shopping trip? Yeah, and it, it really, Jody, just underscores, uh, again, the way the pandemic has has highlighted the way that, that some folks um, are coming out of this uh, okay financially and others have really, really uh, gotten to a place where, uh, where they're challenged. And nowhere, you talked about growing up, nowhere do we see it more than with households uh, who have children under the age of 13. So, you know, when we when we canvass all of those behaviors, like, you know, what are you doing to 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 uh, save uh, because of increasing food prices, whatever Canadians report they're doing, parents with kids under 13 are doing it more and more often. They are the ones switching to cheaper, lower quality brands. They are the ones eating out less. They are the ones um, cutting back on on those healthier foods. So all of those things, um, I think, are going to really bring home the next the next eight months. We've been really, when I think about what governments do, Jody, and when I think about government priorities and and where people's minds are going to go, we have been so seized with and galvanized by the pandemic over the last two years. This is all we've talked about, right? The last two weeks, all we've talked about are the protests and, 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 and the blockades of Ottawa. At, at some point, though, 
uh, our leaders are going to have to explain how they are dialed in on dealing with this inflation issue. They're going to have to demonstrate, you know, do they get it? And uh, and what are they, you know, this, this may well find ourselves in a back-to-basics time when it comes to what government is doing. Um, and there's monetary policy, which is the stuff that, that is harder to control, but ultimately deals with inflation and interest rates and all that economic stuff that you're going to get some great economic geek on to talk about and, 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 and explain to the rest of us. But ultimately, there are also the things that we can do to underpin or shore up these, these most vulnerable households. And the way that we do that uh, and the give and take around that, I think, is going to be very interesting. And I think at some point it is going to be all eyes back to Victoria and back to Ottawa on these really key household issues. We're with Shachi Curl, the president of the Angus Reid Institute, and uh, you can read more about uh, the polling that was done at angusreid.org. What I find really wild, Shachi, in your key findings in this particular uh, poll is, as you keep mentioning, for those with children under the age of 13 in their household, 9 in 10, like 89% of those families say they've changed up their food shopping habits in response to rising prices. How does a government even pretend to be able to help there without going direct to those families who are struggling? And then that brings us back to the public supports. And and I think about people who live with disabilities on top of that, who's, you know, 80 percent of the supports that they receive from the government go to just putting a roof over their head. It, it's it's a real big ball of wax uh, in a time, as you said, when we're coming out of so much noise with this pandemic. Yeah, uh, and, and, and you know, the B.C. budget's being tabled today. Some great questions uh, to put to the finance minister. And, and to, the, ball of, the ball of wax is, is uh, not only just a ball of wax, but it's got all this wool gummed up in it. It's like, yeah, how are you going to fix this, folks? How is it going to get fixed? Well, people like you doing the math on what is actually happening to Canadians is very important. And and we thank you for taking some time to break it down for us. We're going to open up the phone lines on this one, talk to our listener about what their feeling is hitting their bottom line. So, Shachi, thank you so much for taking the time for us today. My pleasure, always. Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett. Looking forward to this next conversation. A gentleman who I have been connected with for two solid years. We have never met in person, but I've talked, I've lost count, tens and twenties and maybe even a hundred times. Jason Kinderchuk and I have talked COVID-19. Jason Kinderchuk is Assistant Professor and Canada Research Chair in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. And you've likely seen him doing an appearance on some uh, network in Canada or abroad. Uh, Jason, you've been so busy these last two years informing the general public in such a, a consumable way about COVID-19. Uh, I want to start this with a, a big, big dose of gratitude to you as we come up on the second anniversary of, of COVID here. Uh, thanks for doing it and thanks for doing it again today and being with us. Oh, you know, listen, I, I hate when, when people do this. Uh, listen, oh. it, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure for me. I, listen, I, I'm just a simple guy. I love what I do. I have, a, you know, I think a res- public responsibility to be able to provide information where and when I can. Um, but it, it, it has been a, a pleasure to do this for the community. Certainly awful circumstances, but yeah. um, happy to be, uh, you know, be, be helping where I can. 
I hate to put the uh, the screws to you on that the humility piece because I know you don't like it, but at the same time, you have calmed my nerves in times of real. Uh, intensity through this pandemic, uh, things that none of us, that's why we call it unprecedented, right? Like none of us could have imagined where we'd find ourselves. And certainly in the first weeks and months, I was chatting with a friend of mine as we were discussing measures being largely lifted, how she was like, you know, when those measures first came into play, I thought it maybe would be a few weeks, maybe a month. You know, we look back to case numbers back then versus case numbers now and the global population and the impacts of this. There's a lot to unpack here and perhaps we'll be talking about it for decades to come. But in the here and now, after two long years of wave after wave after surges and spikes and lessons, when we're looking at at the lifting of measures, what should we be mindful of now in your view? Well, there's a couple things. I mean, first of all, listen, I'm, I'm just writing down calm nerves so that I can uh, explain that to the other Dr. K when she tells me that I stress her out. But um, <laughs> listen, in, in moving ahead, I mean, part of it is we're a bit of uncharted territory, right? So we, we've spent two years battling this. We, we need to be able to have some sense of normalcy return. Um, but we also can't, I think, get, um, you know, maybe kind of looped into this feeling that the, the end is now is now here. Um, we're not there yet. I mean, I think certainly watching what's going on with BA2 right now is a good indication that so, I mean, we're still talking about Omicron and we're still talking about the unknowns with Omicron, let alone what the next variant will look like. So I, we're, we're in a, a period of high caution right now. There's a push to get things back to normal as quickly as possible because it looks like we've been through the worst of it. Um, but we have to appreciate that every time we've done this, SARS-CoV-2 as a virus has thrown a, a left curve at us. Um, so we, we need to be prepared for that. And I think that's the big discussion right now is how, how do we do that if we don't necessarily have that oversight on, on testing, if we don't necessarily have those restrictions and mandates in place? Um, now we're back to individuals and risk assessments for, for all of us in, you know, on a daily basis uh, and in a, a situational awareness of where we are, that's more difficult. And especially at a time when we do just want to get back to where we once were. There's no question that everybody wants this to be over. The fact that it continues and is not over is important to this. But when it comes to the practicality of where we are, let's take British Columbia because that's where I'm sitting. In BC, we are among the most vaccinated jurisdictions in the world. That's great. You know, the protective nature of where we are at in BC. However, even a small percentage of the population being unvaccinated means there are people at very high risk of severe illness or worse. So how do we protect one another and how do we go about some semblance of normalcy? And and what should people understand from from others who maybe have a lower risk tolerance than they might have or higher? You know, if I'm getting prepared for my day, Obviously, I'm assessing whether or not I feel up to par. If I have symptoms of anything, I should be staying home, right? That starts with that. that that's the biggest thing, right? I, so, listen, Omicron has thrown a lot at us. I think the biggest thing is in the, the idea that even with high vaccination rates, the virus can still change in such a way that actually infections are still occurring at a high rate. If we look at just the, the devastation in regards to um, hospitalizations and deaths during the Omicron wave, it's been substantial. Um, it certainly is compared back to Delta. So now we start to move through. We say, okay, well, how, how do we do this on a daily basis? Part of it is some of the same things we've been doing for two years now, which is 
How am I feeling? What have my contacts been? Do I feel like I've had a close exposure? Is there anybody in, in my household that has any sort of symptoms? Um, and what is the setting uh, to, to where I'm going? Is Am I going to be around a lot of people that are considered in that higher risk category? If so, uh, should I be a, a little bit more cautious and should I be bringing a mask along? Um, should, you know, should I be, you know, upfront and ensuring that people know that, you know, from the, you know, three, you know, three doses of vaccine, here's where I sit. Uh, it's, it's all those conversations. They're uncomfortable to have, but I think as individuals, we, we have to appreciate now we can't rely on just restrictions and mandates to be forcing our hand in regards to our behavior. We now have to do that. And I think the best way to do that to, as a virologist, not as a social scientist, is we, we've got to be talking about this openly and appreciate that, that conversations are uncomfortable, but, but we need to, to be able to, to talk with those around us to get, a, a, I think, some perspective on, on where everybody's comfort zone is. So Jason Kinderjack, Assistant Prof and, and Canadian or Canada Research Chair, excuse me, Department of Medical, Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. This is why we tap into your expertise. When I'm listening to you talk about we all have to sort of self-assess, be aware of where we're going, what our risks are in going there, how to best prepare for that, and 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 really what our own personal tolerance might be, because this virus doesn't care. Uh, what our mindset might be or how done we are with it or whatever. Um, but what comes to mind for me as somebody who spent the bulk of the last two years as an essential caregiver for my dad in long-term care, I always had to think about where I had been before yep. I would go to him. So if my tolerance is, I feel good, I'm going to go to a nightclub, I'm going to hit the dance floor because you know what? My mental health relies on me upping my social game. But if I do that, I have to be mindful if I'm going to visit my elders three days later. Yeah. 100%. We've we got a, a situation in our household. We've got you know my father-in-law who's 92 and, and has some underlying health issues. We are cautious. We've got a three-year-old that's not vaccinated. So we have to be very, very considerate of yeah. all those situations. And yeah, it's not easy on a daily basis doing it. Um, but I think that's part of where we are right now. Maybe 2023, things will change and we no longer even have to worry about risk assessments. But let's just assume for now, Omicron is still out there. Um, it puts people in hospitals. We don't know what the, the next few months are going to look like. Let's try and ensure it's as comfortable as possible. And the curveball that respiratory or respiratory, I don't know the proper pronunciation, I've heard it a couple of ways, respiratory season, when we get back to the fall, COVID's not going to be gone, right? That's the situation, right? And I think coming into spring and summer, we know that there is going to be some alleviation of this because we're going to be outdoors more and transmission outdoors is, is much more muted. You're kind of hitting the nail on the head of what is this going to look like when we get back in the fall? Because now it's not only COVID, right? It's not only SARS-CoV-2, it's influenza, it's RSV. It's all these other uh, respiratory illnesses that we have to uh, somehow uh, contend with. And, and certainly, listen, the, the restrictions and the mandates and masking and distancing, all those things have likely helped keep those other numbers low. Now, as we go back to normal, we are in an additive situation. And that makes it more difficult, I, I think, from a public health perspective of, uh, of being able to keep control. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. We are open phones for Jason Kindrachuk, Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair, Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. Our discussion topic jumping off point today, what should we or should we not 
be worried about as COVID measures are lifted largely here in British Columbia and certainly across Canada. We're seeing the reopening, the cautious and slow methodical reopening here in British Columbia. And the phone lines are open 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898 or star 9898, a free call on your cell. You ready to roll here, Jason? Absolutely. Okay, let's dive in. Steve in Vancouver, on Vancouver Island, excuse me, you're up first. Thanks for calling. What's your question? Hey, Jody. Hey, Jason. Thanks for taking my call. Hey, uh, New Year's Eve, there were six of us at a party. Four of us were vaccinated, two of us weren't. The four that were vaccinated, they got, like, knocked down in bed sick with COVID, and the two that weren't vaccinated got absolutely nothing. Why is that? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great question, right? So, Part of this goes back to this idea of saying, like, what, you know, if they were, it, it gets back to saying, well, what were the underlying risks that were associated with each individual? Um, and was there, uh, you know, even differences in terms of the amount of virus that they got exposed to as compared to others? Um, all these things are, they're intricately difficult to try and look at from an individual basis. So from a population basis, we can say, look, hospitalizations and, and severe disease, uh, and symptomatic disease, those rates in, in people that are vaccinated are much, much lower than what we see in, in people that are unvaccinated. But when you look at individuals, now those trends don't necessarily always stick together, right? And, right. and that's part of trying to say, well, what, what does this look like and what were the risks that were associated with that? Um, so, yeah, it's, it, listen, I don't have a direct answer for you, Steve. It's, it's complex. It is. You know what? These are the answers we wish we had because then we could manage this virus even more uh, adeptly. It has been so difficult to learn what we're fighting against over the course of the past two years as it has evolved, like you said, Jason, with the with the variants of concern uh, evolving uh, from a day to day and month to month and surge to surge, if you will. Kathleen and Coquitlam, you're up next here. Welcome to the show. What's your question? Oh, we're young, healthy seniors, fully vaccinated, and in our social network are friends who have the 25 and 30 and 35-year-olds who are out at the Commodore dancing the night away. Do we need to be cautious now? And then they come home for Sunday dinner with mom and dad. <laughs> Do we need to be cautious uh, socializing indoors with other fully vaccinated uh, seniors who nonetheless have in their bubble very socially active young people not wearing masks in indoor spaces? So, so this is such a great question, right? And this gets into this idea of how comfortable are we in removing the restrictions and moving away from the life that we've known for the last two years to reintroducing some of those risks? Uh, and it certainly, especially when we know that the virus is still out. So it's Omicron. Um, listen, we know it's highly contagious. We know, you know, even people that are vaccinated, especially if they've only had two doses, they are not going to be 100% protected from getting infected. So there, there is a risk. But part of this is also this idea of saying, okay, well, when did those events occur? Um, what is the local transmission rate in your community? But also, can you use or adopt using things like rapid tests? I think this is mm -hmm. going to be one of those big things for the next while as we move out of this. We've got something that we can use, at least for the, for the majority of the population. We still need to get them out to underserved communities. But we have rapid tests that can at least give us some assessment at that moment in time of what it looks like as to whether or not we are infected. And I think those are going to be the things that are going to become more commonplace as we move through this. 
So Jason, for Kathleen's purposes there, because I think Kathleen is is part of a large population of people who might be at a higher risk by their age category and yet are very fit and don't have that nervousness of an underlying uh, immune issue, um, but also want to be mindful and, and careful. So if that group of four healthy seniors the two that have the young adults who are partying at the Commodore. I want to go party with them, by the way. I love the Commodore. Um, and, but if we're going to, if we're going to all gather as a foursome there, would all four take a rapid test that comes back negative and it's like, Hey, no problem. Let's have dinner. Yeah. Listen, I think having that additional oversight is important, right? You, yeah. you want to, yeah. you certainly want to look at, at the people that have those larger uh, uh, networks outside of, of those bubbles um, first. But I think it is about, again, easing back into this and, and appreciate listening yeah, on the cron. By, by, by the large part, is less severe than what we've seen with Delta. It's not zero, but for people that are healthy, um, certainly it's, it, there is a potential lower risk that's associated with it, but it's not zero. And trying to figure out how to mitigate some of that is, is what's important. Hopefully we answered your question. Kathleen, thanks for the phone call. Let's move down the phone board. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Mike and Langley, thanks for waiting. You're up next. Hi there. Hi. So I've, I've been questioning the science, and respectfully, I've been questioning the science from the beginning, uh, which I think everybody should do. You should always question it. It doesn't mean you disagree with it. It's, it's okay and healthy to question it because that's how you learn. Okay. Unfortunately, the, the science keeps changing, and I guess my main question revolves around the testing. Uh, personal experience, uh, been tested, uh, done all that kind of stuff, and tested positive and negative. Both, both full-on PCR tests, so not rapid or anything like that, within a day of each other. So even family members who have argued vehemently from day one of this whole process are in the medical field are now actually acknowledging that these tests cannot differentiate between COVID and a common cold or a flu. So I'm wondering, where's the real and the true science behind that? Like, can they really differentiate is what I really like to know. So, so when we think about the PCR test, the one thing we need to appreciate is that what, what we use in the PCR tests are pieces um, of, of DNA called primers. And these primers are very specific for the SARS-CoV-2 genome. Um, so we, we don't see um, those false positives binding up with influenza or with other viruses because the genomes are so distinct. Um, so where we get into is this idea of false positives and false negatives. Um, there have been instances where there are false positives and false negatives. Um, but the PCR tests also are just giving us, uh, again, a picture of the amount of genome that's there. So you can have people that are no longer infectious, but maybe carrying some of that genome along for a long period of time um, and still test positive by PCRs. Um, so the, the PCRs, I, I think, are certainly are, are one of our most sensitive tests right now, and, and certainly more sensitive than, than the rapid tests. Mm-hmm. Um, the question now is more about, well, what happens if you're positive? How long can a person potentially be PCR positive and what does that equate to in regards to their infectiousness? And certainly with the new variants, that's where it becomes a little bit more difficult to interpret. And that's why I think you've heard some of that changeover of, well, five days versus 10 days um, post-infection uh, that people need to be watching for. And now you're seeing um, the, you know, move, the move back away from some of that. It's an excellent um, perspective that you bring because it's an inexact thing 
the science of dealing with COVID-19. We're learning, as Dr. Henry often says, you know, kind of building the spaceship while flying at warp speed, learning every single day. And the most important thing is learning to stay safe. And you've armed us with great tools as always, Jason. Thanks for your time today. Always a pleasure, Jody. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett on what is BC Budget 2022 day. And yes, the proceedings have begun at the legislature. We are just standing by to connect with our global BC Legislative Bureau Chief, Keith Baldry, who has been in the budget lockup. We have all been waiting for with bated breath as to what we can expect in this next budget for the fiscal year ending March 31st, 2023. Uh, is this a pandemic? budget? Is it an endemic budget? We, of course, spoke with Richard Zussman on this program yesterday to give us some forecasting on it, but now we'll get the goods on what is currently in this moment being announced by our finance minister, uh, Selena Robinson. Keith Baldry joins us and has gone through this budget and brings us the highlights now. Keith, thank you very much for picking up your phone so quickly. Just got out of the lockup moments ago. (laughs) All right. Tell us what it looks like, Keith. Really not a headline budget. Not, there's no one single headline. It's very much almost, uh, I wouldn't call it a stand pat budget, because again, interestingly enough, in the current fiscal year, we're right now just ending. Uh, she almost balanced the budget, which was unheard of a year ago. But the deficit coming in at just $483 uh, million, which again, the forecast had been billions of dollars of deficit. But no sooner has she tabled or come to a close of the current fiscal year, almost balancing the budget, right back to massive deficit financing uh, for the coming year, $6.5 billion deficit. That's forecast to shrink to $4.2 billion and then $3.2 billion the year after that. So we're still three years of pretty significant deficits uh, as a result of the ongoing pandemic. Uh, interesting, a huge increase in capital spending, taxpayer-supported capital spending for infrastructure projects, a record $27 billion over three years, which is a, a record. The price of that is... Uh, increasing our debt at the end of three years to $125 million, almost doubling in the space of about seven or eight years. Healthcare continues to go up big time, more than a billion dollars uh, from year to year. Um, a lot of contingency funds built into this budget too, Jody. So she does have a lot of elbow room to make adjustments as we go through the, fis- uh, through the fiscal year. You're going to see contingency money used to continue to pay for the vaccination program, anything re- related to, to that in terms of the health pandemic, to help pay for the repair of a lot of highways that were damaged in the in the flooding. That's not a line item in this budget. It is in contingency. She's got about five or six billion dollars to play with for unforeseen emergencies and other unallocated spendings. But no real one takeaway in terms of this budget. It continues to fund health care a significant amount because all budgets do. I mean, that's that's not news. Um, Education gets a lift as well. But uh, there's money set aside for flood recovery, about one and a half billion dollars over three years. Uh, A different way to uh, um, fight forest fires is going to be more prep work, more funding beforehand rather than just letting the forest start. Uh, being ablaze and then go to work. But again, no real uh, news nugget or headline, no no change in direction. It's very much continuing on the same direction that was set out uh, really at the beginning of the mandate. Okay, so you've mentioned the wildfires piece that we sort of got the preview on yesterday when the finance minister gave us sort of a peek at what would be announced today. Uh, what about reconciliation? Well, there's now going to be a secretariat set up uh, just basically to work internally in government to make sure everybody's on the same page when it comes to 
uh, working with First Nations. But there's not a specific uh, line item associated with something like that. It's just a philosophical shift, an ongoing shift in government uh, to work towards an ongoing reconciliation. It's not something that's going to get accomplished in one year. It's right. just part of the part of the fabric now, part of the part of the framework of everything. Everything has to be filtered through. Almost everything is filtered through that lens in a way uh, never before. And now there's going to be more people responsible in government to ensure that's happening. Okay, so coming up later in the program, we have Kelly Scott, the BC uh, president of the BC Road Builders and Heavy Construction Association. And when you mentioned highway repair, the five to six billion that's built into that contingency fund, is it surprising that there isn't more of a like laid out line item with regard to the upgrades? Uh, Clearly, we've seen some devastation just in this past year, wildfires and extreme weather events that have impacted our, Mm -hmm. our highway and byway infrastructure here in BC. Well, funnily enough, I just talked to Kelly because he was in one of the, we had, we had another virtual scrum with, with various stakeholders. They were across the street in the Crystal Garden. We were in a room here at the convention center. So we talked by a uh, sort of a virtual camera, but that was, you know, he was the one I requested. I knew there was going to be some news in this about this. He says, basically they're fast tracking the requests for proposals to get work going as, as soon as possible on the highways most damaged. Uh, he's, uh, the money will, is in the budget, but it's in the form of a contingency fund. And contingencies aren't identified line by line. They're just basically one size right. fits all. It's a grab bag. It's a, a pot full of money that all sorts of things can be used to tap into it. And highways, quite apart from the highways that are already underway in terms of construction, there's a, a, you know, $2 billion of roads being built or modified or repaired, quite apart from the highways that were damaged. And so the highways that were damaged are on top of what's that $2 billion already earmarked for road improvements. And that's on top of the new Patello Bridge. Oh, yeah. and another one, and here's a little bit of a news. The, uh, okay. the Massey Tunnel is no longer referred to as the Massey Tunnel. It's been replaced by the Fraser River Tunnel Project. Uh, and that's 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 the new name of that project going forward. But that's another wor- area where Kelly's members are going to have some work on. So there's, I talked to him. He's very happy with what he sees in this budget because there's a lot of work, uh, a lot of jobs now going forward associated with building roads and repairing roads, whether it's the ones, the small ones or the big ticket ones that were damaged in the in the weather event. Okay, so pardon my novice on this. Does the contingency plan also include, or is flood recovery separate? Does it include, um, you know, what we saw in uh, Sumas Lakes and what what, and even the fire damage? What we saw happen in Lytton, like, are there? Is that all in that one pile? No, that well, that's a separate uh, contingency fund. If you were, it's about four hundred million dollars a year set aside for flood uh, flooding relief or okay. flooding recovery. But yeah. again, that's a, that's not necessarily a totally scientific number this is just an estimation of what can occur if it goes over that if more is required for that then that's where another contingency fund will be dipped into to um, to pay for it for example the the coca that was repaired over christmas over over which was sort of not a final fix uh we learned in the lockup that cost about 200 million dollars it doesn't come out of the transportation minister's budget it comes out of contingencies so the contingencies were bigger than we've ever seen before in the year we're currently in, which is great because the weather events cost so much money and the contingencies were used to cover that. And it seems going forward, the way to pay for these weather catastrophes or emergencies is not necessarily assign a line item to them, but just say, well, everything's going to have to come out of a huge contingency fund. And that's why we've got this five to six billion dollars parked there. 
Interesting that you mentioned that because I was trying to go back in my memory and think, what did contingency budgets look like pre-pandemic? We've learned a lot uh, of it's from these unprecedented times, have we not? Oh, for sure. The contingencies now are, are one of the biggest parts of the budget because, again, it's hard to uh, just like forest. I mean, I have talked about what dollar figure do you attach to forest fires every yeah. year? You have no idea what the budget's going to be. No one saw uh, the, the final number associated with last year's wildfires, but it has to be paid. Well, you don't necessarily assign a light item to say seven hundred fifty million dollars for that particular uh, cost. In fact, the, the budget for fighting forest fires right now in this new budget is one hundred ninety-four million dollars. It will likely exceed that by a great number, but it doesn't mean yeah. the costs aren't covered. It just means they come out of the contingency fund. And you're right; the contingency fund never used to be anywhere near as big as they are now, and it's reflective, I think, of the rise of unforeseen events, whether it's the pandemic which has its own contingency fund, or whether it's climate change and weather events associated with them. Okay, a couple more questions. I know you have to get to work on your special for tonight on the BC Budget 2022 here, Keith, but uh, there are two things that I want to get to here. Number one, Richard's question from yesterday to the finance minister about whether this is a pandemic budget or an endemic budget. When you look at it in its entirety, does it look like we're still in it for another year as far as budgets are concerned? I think so. I don't see any. Um, there's no. There's no tax breaks. There's no rebates. There's none of that give back that you would think might be more associated with a, a non-pandemic uh, budget. This one still contains, you know, uh, two billion dollars for pandemic-associated relief and measures. Yeah. That's a lot of money. So that's reflective that money. this is going to be with us for some time. Uh, again, the, the good news is the budget, again, shows the BC economy has bounced back significantly in terms of economic activity. It's exceeded all sorts of expectations, which is why the budget was almost balanced this current fiscal year. But it's also reflective of the fact that the pandemic still inflicts a significant financial cost on the economy uh, for on any number of fronts, which is why right now forecast to be in some pretty significant deficits for the coming years. But, you know, if we don't see the weather events that we saw this this past year, if those don't occur in the coming year, we could be into a surplus situation much further than currently anticipated. Yeah, really quickly. Um, One more thing, because I know that there are teachers that are staring at their radios going, come on now, tell me more. You mentioned education, but we need more. What do we see on that? Well, education is getting a uh, sort of a what do I figure here? Four hundred million dollar lift, three hundred fifty million dollar lift. Part of that is part of the child care that's associated uh, now as part of the education ministry. Where the teachers are going to be interested, and whether all public sector employees are going to be interested, is when contract talks begin again, and that's going to be uh, again contingency money be used to fund some of those contracts. But that's where the teachers are going to be looking at in terms of the coming years uh, when their contract starts to be negotiated along with other public sector employees. All right, Keith Baldry, as always, much appreciated. The immediate turnaround on the BC Budget Day will be tuned in to Global News tonight, of course, to see your full debrief. Catch us on BC One in a bit. I'm Jody Vanson for Jill This Week, continuing our discussions about the BC 2022 budget. Lots has been said about the impacts of climate change, particularly on our infrastructure. Yes, fires. Yes, atmospheric rivers and polar vortexes. And how are Big highways in B.C. have been devastated by extreme weather, flat out. It has been quite a year for that. We want to bring in Kelly Scott, the president of B.C. Road Builders and Heavy Construction Association. Kelly, thanks for being with us today. 
You bet, Jody. I know I speak for all British Columbians to say a huge thank you to everybody who has been pulling in the same direction to get our BC highways up and running to the degree that they are right now after the devastation we witnessed uh, back in November. So that off the top, a big dose of gratitude to everyone who is associated with continuing to support our infrastructure in BC. So Thank you for that. Now, tell me, uh, Keith Baldry gave me a little bit of a hint that you were happy with what you've seen in Budget 2022. Tell us why. Well, I'll tell you, firstly, I'd like to say thank you for the big uh, thanks to our team that uh, put uh, the highways back together. You know, we had uh, a a collective effort from all the contractors and the Ministry of Transportation really came together nicely for us. So uh, and more to come. Uh, this budget, we, we looked at what was going on in this budget, and as much as our focus has always been on the rebuilding of the four highways, Kokahala and that, uh, we still have 47,000 kilometers of roads in British Columbia that need to be looked at constantly. And with the, in the budget, we have what we call rehab and uh, side road improvements, and we've noticed an uptick in both those budgets for 2022-23. So, so that bodes well for industry but it also bodes well for those communities that are on those side roads or on those other highways uh, that aren't getting the press, as, as you know, since November. Yep. We've pretty all focused on the canyon, but there's a lot of roads and bridges. I think there's almost 3,000 bridges throughout British Columbia that will all have to be looked at going forward. And, and this budget uh, indicates the government is planning to go that way. In your time as president with BC Road Builders and Heavy Construction Association, how have you assessed what has changed in terms of how you build and how you will build for the future? Well, it's, it, when we work for the ministry, that's re- really driven by Ministry of Transportation. And, and the word climate change started to show up in their vocabulary about 10, 15 years ago. Uh, we need to be aware of it. We need to know the impact of it. And as I, as I recall growing up in the North Shore, that Sea the Sky Highway was forever being shut down due to slides. When we put in that new Sea the Sky Highway, uh, government uh, engineers and Ministry of Transportation engineered climate change and resiliency into it. We don't get the slide damage that we used to get. And that was back when the Olympics were put in in 2010. So, right. so we, we've seen a big change that way. And I think what we've just experienced uh, has really opened up everybody's eyes. We've, we've gone through that heat dome in, in August to the massive floods in November. And the resulting damage to the infrastructure uh, is causing everybody to rethink how we build. And now as we go forward, we'll be building, rebuilding better, uh, keeping in mind that with these uh, 100 or 500 year floods will happen again. It was quite something to witness. I, by total randomness, was one of the people that was first diverted off of Highway 5 when that first slide hit on November 14th and was diverted towards Princeton. And every corner we came around on the highway, is it three? The one that's between 97 yeah. and, and the Hope Princeton Highway, the, the really windy little one. I In all of my life as a British Columbian, born and raised Vancouverite, I'd never been on this stretch of highway. And every time we came around a corner, there was a boulder on on the other side, the, the single lane coming the other direction. And my heart skipped a beat. It did yeah. remind me a little bit of when driving to and from the sea to sky as a kid and oh. seeing that there'd be debris on the highway. It, it feels like yeah. forever ago that that was a reality. But you speak to the fact that we have thousands of kilometers of roadways that need that attention. 
Yeah, certainly with climate change and the flooding, uh, we need to be looking everywhere. And the government is assessing. They have an uh, inventory of the infrastructure. And I know they've been looking at bridges. I know they're looking at the road networks. Where, where, what else do we need to do to make this infrastructure more resilient to, to some of these catastrophic failures we've seen with the weather? And again, we talk about these smaller communities. They are, you know, as much as we merit and the littons of the world we, we felt for, there are communities up in the north there that are reliant on these side roads just to get out for health care, for their groceries and that. So it's important government continues to invest in that side roads as well as the uh, our main highway corridors. We've certainly learned a lot over this last year with being pummeled time and again. It felt like, as you mentioned, the heat dome in June, July, and then again in November with back-to-back-to-back atmospheric rivers, and then a snowfall and plunged into the Arctic vortex. (laughs) It has been quite something. We've learned just how quickly we can be cut off if we're not best prepared. But we've also learned just how hard your BC Road Builders and Heavy Construction Association work for every British Columbian. When we're driving through the the road repair season that is spring and summer and fall, what are some of the things, Kelly, that we should be rem- mindful of when we're, you know, perhaps a little bit impatient to get to our destination when we're going through an area of construction or something where we're being told to, to watch our speed uh, for reasons of rebuilding? Uh, Jody, uh, safety is number one. And, and you know, the safety of those workers out there, you're going by at 60 kilometers an hour. Uh, imagine just standing there and, and those cars going by. Uh, watch those signs. They're there for a reason. Uh, keep the speed down. You're eventually going to get to your location. Uh, there's no urgency right now. And I think, I think British Columbians and the public uh, realize how important the infrastructure and the efficient and safe infrastructure is. And when the coke went down and we got cut off from the rest of Canada, we had the rail lines down. We really have a focus now from the public and it's certainly the politicians that we need to be investing in infrastructure. We can't let it go. And every year we'll keep investing to make the infrastructure more resilient, especially right now what we're seeing with all this climate change. We're with but Kelly Scott. Safe- the pr- oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, Jody. But safety is number one. And, and when we see the flaggers out there, it's, it's yeah. a real issue to us. And, uh, you know, these roads are meant to be driven properly and efficiently, but there are times we need repairs done and we have to slow the traffic down or divert it so we can get to the repairs properly. And I think that's a really important message to get out there. There are many, many, many British Columbians who pay attention to that and understand the humans that are part of that road crew that are literally yep. putting their lives on the line. And one little mistake by a driver that's not paying attention or going too quickly through a construction zone can be tragic. So we want to just put that out there, being mindful as we're opening things up here in British Columbia. Kelly, I want, again, to thank your crew. Uh, frontliners, for sure, yep. are the BC Road Builders and Heavy Construction Association. Thank you for your time today. You bet, Joe.